Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Obscurities. I'm Debbie Rashawn. The working day was done and the nightlife was alight. Portland saloons were filled and alive, emitting laughter, chatter, and musical delight. The aromas of stewed beef and potatoes and dried fruit pies accompanied the wandering wafts of whiskey and smoke. A strong, healthy young man, ready to relax from his laborious day, arrives at the saloon and is greeted by an intriguing new face. It was a normal night that ushered in hopes that the worries of the day would be lifted by the spirits of a hard drink, a bite to eat, and a friendly, beautiful face. No novice to this part of town, he was smart and wary and not to be swallowed up by Portland's rumored underworld. No, not him. He had no trouble holding his liquor. (laughs) Feeling heavy and disoriented, he awakes in a new atmosphere. The noise has been filtered down to the voices of men shouting, and all he smells is the familiar staunch of sweaty men engulfed in a less familiar scent of salt water. Cold, wet, and a shocking blow to the stomach. A voice shouts at him to stand to his feet and heave. The young man unwillingly found himself with a new occupation. Surprisingly enough, this was not an uncommon story. In the late 19th century, Portland was referred to as the Forbidden City of the West. Tales and legends of able-bodied men being drugged, kidnapped, sold to captains, and forced to work on ships bound for Shanghai came alive here. From 1850 to 1941, the fear of being shanghaied or crimped screamed the loudest. In 1890, Portland had become the Shanghai capital of the world, and there was a mysterious reason for it. Or was there? There was certainly something about Portland that aided its rise to being regarded as one of the most dangerous cities of the West during that time period. The answer was certainly not a subject of open conversation then, and when spoken of, should anyone dare, only in hushed tones, 
secret tones would the forbidden secret be uttered. As the era of sail was running out of steam, or rather was being replaced by steam, captains of ships in the sea trades were becoming more desperate for able crewmen to work the wind jammers. The work was hard, long, and unenticing. The perilous sea life changed men. Captains were brutal. It was an important job, but a thankless one. To be a sailor in this era more often meant to be a slave, as the rights of any sailor were slim to none. If a sailor was afforded the opportunity to crew a new steamliner, he'd be a fool not to take it. The windjammer ships were gradually emptied out of the ports around the world and being replaced by the revolutionary steamships. Thus, the desperate need of crewmen on the sailing ships that were left gave rise to the danger and corruption of crimps or shanghaiers, the men who illegally sold unsuspecting men to sea captains. The crimping trade began in the boarding houses. Sailors or other men laid off from their occupations or in need of a place to stay for whatever reason boarded at the houses solely on credit. It was quite the scam. The longer a man stayed, the more in debt he would become to the owner. When a ship came to port in need of more crew, the owners would present the bill racked up by the sailor and inform them they had two options. They could pay their debt, or they could sign on to the ship in need of crew. The captain of that ship would pay the boardmaster the debt and deduct it out of the amount from the sailor's wages to be earned on the ship. The boardmasters would also indulge in charging the captain with what became known as blood money, the finder's fee. No man willingly wanted to go to sea. That is why the boardmasters and the crimps were the toughest and most disreputable men of the era. Larry Sullivan was one of the most unique crimps of Stumptown, however. He was a well-polished and put-together businessman by day, but a hard-fisted boxer by night. Sullivan was a powerful politician and used his influence to swing elections. He would hire men to jump from one poll station to the next to fill ballot boxes. If anyone found himself on the wrong side of this heavyweight boxer, they would likely find their head pounded in, or so his reputation would claim. Larry Sullivan was so conniving that a Sailors Boarding House Commission was established in 1903 by the state legislature which then granted Sullivan and his partners a monopoly on the crimping enterprise. Because this commission was clearly on Sullivan's side, his illegal operations went unpunished. But before Sullivan rose to power, there was another crimp in town by the name of Joseph Bunko Kelly, who earned the title of the King of the Crimps, in 1885 by selling a drunk crewman for $50 to a sea captain. 
The ship set sail before the captain realized he had just bought a cigar store Native Indian statue wrapped in blankets. Just a few years prior, Bunko Kelly's reputation took off when a large group of men broke into the cellar of what they thought was the Snug Harbor Saloon. In the faint flicker of the candlelight, the men saw a lineup of wooden kegs and believed to have hit the jackpot of their whiskey-thirsty dreams. Not long after a keg was broken into, the men collapsed on the cold cellar floor, overcome with ferocious sickness. As it so happened, Bunko Kelly was out that night hunting 20 able-bodied men to crew the ship Flying Prince. Passing by the Johnson and Sons undertakers, he noticed the cellar was open and peered in to find more than a dozen men passed out on the floor. The men had broken into the cellar of a mortuary, not a saloon, and what they thought was whiskey were actually stored kegs of formaldehyde. They had poisoned themselves to death. Unbothered by the men's pitiful fate, Bunko Kelly saw it to his advantage. He brought some men over to have the limp, intoxicated bodies brought to the ship's captain. Claiming that they had merely indulged in a night of binge drinking, Kelly charged the captain $50 a head. After closer inspection, once the ship had already set sail, the captain realized that he had been fooled. More than half of them were dead. The next day, the captain offloaded the corpses at the downtown dock. And the word spread quickly of Joseph Kelly's brutal corruption. During the time of Bunko Kelly's fame, there were a combination of reasons that supported his enterprise. The lack of thorough inspection of the merchandise on behalf of the captains proved the desperation for able crewmen in the maritime industry at the time. Certain economic conditions, laws, and the shortage of skilled sailors were the primary influences in the crimping trade. Furthermore, the California gold rush brought many sailors out west, but not to sail. Port cities on the east and west coasts were popular for boardmasters to easily turn to crimping to populate the windjammer crews. Laws were slowly introduced to deter and make the enterprise more difficult, but it wasn't until 1915 that crimping was declared a federal crime. Joseph Bunko Kelly's success in the crimping business, however, would not have been achieved without the man who opened Oregon's first-ever sailor's boarding house in Portland, Jim Turk. Historians find it odd that he would do such a thing, since during that time, Portland was primarily a port for regional exports. There weren't many out-of-town sailors looking for a place to stay. But Turk's foresight proved profitable, and not long after, Portland's maritime trade expanded greatly. What was it about Portland that gave way to the crimping era so much more easily? There's a reason things go underground. 
and there is no contrary rationale as to why the secret support system that lay beneath Old Town did not play a role in aiding the West's most vile boardmasters and much, much more. Over time, the basements of saloons, bordellos, and stores near the Portland waterfront all became interconnected with a series of passageways and trap doors, today known as the Shanghai Tunnels. A stroll down Northwest Avenue will lead you to what was once Hobo's Restaurant, a popular and laid-back bar and lounge, now closed after the onset of the worldwide COVID-19 pandemic. Directly in front, you'll find a trap door in the pavement. This is the entrance used for the Portland Underground Tours. The mysterious tunnels are a mixed bag of fact and fiction. As it is with anything easily concealed, suspicious activities thrived in the Portland Underground. It is believed that the tunnels were originally developed in the late 19th century for the transport of opium by Chinese merchants. In the 1890s, opium was legal, but it was taxed heavily. Therefore, smuggling it proved a lucrative operation. Portland's Chinatown was also home to many illegal gambling operations, and the ability to have a seamless getaway in a police raid became priceless. The tunnels were dangerously friendly to brothels, illegal trade, and organized crime. Though many legal operations were conducted in them, they were precariously welcoming to forced prostitution, murders, and the crushing of hopes and dreams. Though folk stories and legends abound, historians refute the claims of the tunnels being used for the transport of the kidnapped. If a crimp needed to detain a victim for any length of time, for whatever reason before selling him to a captain, the tunnels could have been ideal. One would think that these tunnels were also used in the transportation of these poor victims. However, no boardmaster would need to hide a man in transport, since most crimps had their victims' drinks spiked. In the public eye, they were merely drunk from a night on the town. Who could know if they were willing or unwilling? The need to hide these victims in secrecy was low. The prohibition began early in Oregon and ushered in a new use for the underground following the crimping era. By 1918, the 18th Amendment was passed under President Herbert Hoover, prohibiting the manufacture, sale, or transportation of intoxicating liquors. In 1920, the Volstead Act enforced the prohibition. A walk at street level in the 1920s in Old Town, Portland, would lead you to believe the city was calm and quiet. Enter through that unsuspecting laundromat or soda shop, walk to the back door, and provide the secret code, a special knock, password, or handshake, and upon entering, the quietness of the upper street would be swept away with a lively atmosphere filled with jazz and the obnoxious chatter of men and women alike.
It is no coincidence that the tunnels interconnected restaurants and bars. The prohibition only multiplied the number of speakeasies across the nation, and thanks to the Shanghai tunnels, Portland was well set up to accommodate. If the tunnels were used for such a wide variety of purposes, both legal and illegal, and of all the nicknames to stick over more than a century later, why are they called the Shanghai tunnels? Today, many of the Shanghai tunnels have collapsed and are in disrepair. Legends state that the tunnels led all the way to the waterfront. It was there that the transaction between Crimp and Captain would take place, but historians believe much of them would have been flooded near the waterfront. Michael Jones is a historian that has worked for decades to map out the Portland Underground. In conjunction with the Cascade Geographic Society, he has worked to explore and restore what is left of the tunnels and provide guided tours to visitors. Before the onset of COVID-19 pandemic, the Portland walking tours were the only way to lay eyes on the Shanghai tunnels and experience the trap doors, the holding cells, and the eerie passageways they offer. Visitors were entertained with the legendary tales collected over the years by word of mouth and research. Facts and fiction intermingle so well that it is left to the visitors to decide why these tunnels are called the Shanghai Tunnels. They very likely could have been used for Shanghaiing, and more likely, could have not. However, their ability to house the secret woes of Portland is not an obscurity. <laughs>